So up here on the screen, uh, not that one, I love that one, the next one right there. Um, up here on the screen, we have a picture of one of the greatest generators of fun maybe in the history of the world, all right? Uh, so that merry-go-round right there always works better if there's a little bit of rust on it um, and a really deep ditch around it and a lot, of, uh, a lot of weeds underneath. You may not know, but those merry-go-rounds like that, they actually go faster when they're wrapped in yellow caution tape. Uh, so like there's, you know, I think about the merry-go-round that was at the seminary campus when we lived down there and, and our kids were little, and it would at one time been wrapped in caution tape, and all the caution tape had just kind of made its way underneath, and you go around and around. And so how many of you went to an elementary school that had one of those bad boys right there at the elementary school? Yes, everything that's good in our world, I think, is found, is found right there. So now I know I'm going to get in trouble with my science friends here, so be patient with me. My dad was a science teacher. My brother teaches high school science. I was talking to some gentlemen this morning about science. So be patient with me here because I know that these forces that are involved are more complicated than this. But I learned a distinction between centrifugal force and centripetal force. So centrifugal, that has the F there in, in the middle, is the force that will fling you off, that will send you far away. It's the force that sends you out. And then centripetal, P-E-T-A-L, pulls you in. Uh, I think of pedaling home or pedaling back to the middle, or so that's kind of how I distinguish it. Those of you that know that science well could tell me it's way more complicated than that. I get it. I just need to use it for a sermon, okay? So uh, centrifugal sends you away, flings you away. Centripetal pulls you in. Now you say, why talk about that? Hebrews chapter 4 and really starting back in 2, 3, 4, that, that whole progression, but especially Hebrews chapter 4, the people are being faced with fear. And the fear is that they will not endure in their faith, that they will not continue going, that they will go away from the Lord. So they're on this path, they're on this merry-go-round, and the fear is that they're going to be flung away, that they're going to go far away from the Lord. And so how does that happen? Why would that happen, that they would go far away? Well, Temptations come, you're following the Lord, and then Jesus says that weeds can grow up around, the sun can come down on you, you can face all these challenges in life, you have these trials of life, you have the social pressure that says, why would you continue to go to church? Why do you still believe in a book written thousands of years ago? Why do you still believe in a God you can't see? They have, we have all these questions, these social pressures. We have the conviction that comes from God's word, that when you see God's word and you realize something's not right in my heart, something's not right in my life, that can either create the fear that drives you back to the Lord, or it can drive you away. And you can say, I don't want to deal with that right now. I'm not going to deal with that right now. I'm going to do my own thing. And so the people that are receiving this sermon in the book of Hebrews, they're at a crossroads. Are they going to go away from the Lord because of fear, or are they going to be drawn back to the Lord? And what we're going to see this morning are two commands, two foundations that draw us back in faith to the Lord when we live in a world where everything in this world is tempting to send us the wrong way, throw us off the merry-go-round. Verse 14, so let's look at this here. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, here's what I want you to see in verse 14. A couple of things that, that are going to be helpful here. The first is, when you look at the big picture of the book of Hebrews, if you like to write in your Bible or you like to take notes, out to the side of verses 14 through 16 in chapter 4, you need to write Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Because what is happening here is the author is making a transition and he's introducing language in these four verses that we're dealing with this morning. And the language almost exactly mirrors what you find in chapter 10, verses 19 to 23. And he uses chapter 4 and chapter 10 to draw a parenthesis around some material that he's going to put there in the middle. So when you see this language about a high priest and a confession, what it's meant to do is it prepares you for what's going to come later in, in chapter 10. Here's the other thing I want you to be aware of. In these three little verses that we're studying this morning, you're going to get two commands. So two imperatives, two things we're called to do. These are those commands that are given in God's word. And you're going to get two foundations for those commands. Because in your Bible, almost every time that God gives us a command, he gives us a supporting idea to go with it. In parenting, you know it's okay just to say, I told you to do this, and you're going to do it. Like, that's, you know, that's a legitimate parenting strategy. As kids get older, you usually say, I'm going to tell you to do this, and here's the reason behind it. Here's why. Here's why you can do this. Sometimes God gives us commands and just says, you're going to do it. But almost always in Scripture, you get some foundation behind that command, something that allows for that command to happen. So right here, the supporting statement is the since phrase up at the top. Since we have a great high priest, therefore, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to hold fast our confession. So point number one, we're talking about centripetal faith, a faith that pulls us back to the Lord, that pulls us back, keeps us from being flung off the merry-go-round. What kind of faith is that? How do you have that kind of faith? Point number one, can you guys go to the next stream? Yeah, there we go. Hold firmly to your confession. Depends on the translation that you're looking at. It may say hold fast to your confession, or it may say hold firmly. We don't really use hold fast very much in our world. It sounds strange, and so hold firmly is probably going to make a lot more sense to you. What are you supposed to do? Hold firmly to your confession. How is this possible? Well, verse 14 says that it's possible because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. This command that God gives us to hold firmly to our confession of faith, how are you supposed to do that? You're supposed to do it because you have a high priest and you have a brother who is also the son of God who provides access to God, who makes this possible. I'll try to give you an illustration of this. If you know the business owner's friend and you know, say, say this again, if you know a business owner's son or child, they're probably going to have a key that has access to where all the snacks are. You get the idea? Okay. So if you know the son of the local coach, there's a good chance that he has a key that has access to the gym. And you can get into the gym, you can get into the snack bar, because you know the son of the one who is in charge. What this verse is saying is you have access to God. You are able to come and experience all that God has for you because you have access to those things through Jesus, the Son of God, who is also the high priest. When you hear that language about Jesus being the high priest, let's say a couple of things about that. Number one, I would tell you 
just hold tight for the months to come because the book of Hebrews comes back to this reality of Jesus as high priest over and over and over again. So we're going to talk a lot about this. But there are two doctrines that you need to know. The doctrine of atonement and the doctrine that we're going to call of ascension. And this is a moment that I just tell you as a church, thank you for being a church that cares about God's word and cares about theology. Like these things matter. We don't study scripture. We don't study theology just because we want to know more. We want to be smarter. We study these things because of the foundation of how we live the life that God has called us to live. It's, it's where our hope is found. And so when we say that Jesus is the great high priest, we're talking about this doctrine of atonement that says because of our sin, we are separated from God. Because of our sin, we face the reality of death. And the only way we can be made right with God is if someone provides an atonement. Someone provides an off offering and a covering and takes on that sin that we can never deal with on our own. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Throughout the book of Hebrews, you're going to find out that Jesus is the great high priest who himself becomes the great sacrifice. And that's the beauty of it. He is both the high priest who offers the sacrifice and he himself becomes the sacrifice that provides atonement for our sins. And friends, that is our only hope. If you think, how do I hope, have hope for eternity? How can I be with God one day? How can I be saved? It is because Jesus has provided the atonement, the covering, the forgiveness for your sins. And it didn't just stop there. So the atonement deals with our sin the doctrine of ascension says that after Jesus died, what did he do? He rose again. And not only did he rise again, but he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us forever. And so he went through the heavens to be at the place where he sits at the throne of God, which means he has overcome death. The two problems that we can never overcome on our own, sin and death, Jesus overcame both of those by being the great high priest. And so what is the command in this situation? It's to hold firmly to that confession. To hold firmly to say, that is my great hope in life. I can lose everything else, but I can't lose that. That is where I find the rock of my life. That is where I find the foundation of my life, the hope of my life, is this confession. If you need a summary of this confession, probably the simplest summary is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. We don't do a ton of Bible memory at Emmaus, though we need to do more and more and more of this. But if you could do something this week that would be so good for your spiritual growth and spiritual development, is if you've never memorized Romans 10.9, this is a great place to start with Scripture memory. It comes in different translations. You may have learned it in different ways. But this idea that if you confess with your mouth, make the confession that Jesus is Lord— and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so if you were going to do one thing this week to say, I need to take a step forward spiritually. I, I need to get, know God's word more. I need to memorize. Write it on a note card. Put it on your phone. Put it someplace that you say, I need to put that verse into my heart. I need to put that verse into my mind. That my confession would be, Jesus is Lord. And that I would believe deeply that God raised him from the dead. And when I know those things, that's how we experience salvation. That confession right there, Jesus is Lord. When these kids are baptized today and they say, well, you say, what is your confession? It's Jesus is Lord. When we talk to our kids about baptism, 
and I meet with the kids, I'll ask them, how many times in life are you baptized? How many times in life are you baptized? Well, I'm trying to get them to say one. Like, that's, that's the goal. Sometimes there's confusion, things happen. I completely understand that, but you baptize one time. And then I'll ask them, how many times do you participate in the Lord's Supper? And they're never totally sure what to say in, in response to that. What I'm trying to get them to say is hundreds of times. Like, throughout my life, over and over and over again, I would be reminded of my confession. I would be reminded where my hope is found. And so what I want to tell you this morning is if you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, if you've never made that confession before, this morning is the time to do that. If you've made that confession and you've never displayed it publicly through baptism, take that step this week. I need to take that step. I've never shown people the work that God has done in my life. I need to take that step of faith and obedience. And this morning, you have a chance to gather with the church and participate in the Lord's Supper, to say, yeah, I remember, this is, this is my confession, and I'm going to hold tightly to that. I'm not going to let go of that. Students, Brooklyn was praying about this a, a few minutes ago, but we live in a world where you see so many people going away from their confession. You see so many people going away from their baptism, going away from their faith, and the call this morning is to hold firmly to your confession. To say, this is the core of my life. This is the foundation of my life. And I will not let go of this. Because if I lose this, I have no other hope in life. You have this John chapter 6 story that we talk about sometimes. Where people were going away from Jesus. Jesus was not great at growing groups. Like groups would get big and he would say something controversial and then people would leave and go somewhere else. And so people were leaving Jesus at this time. They were going away. And Jesus looks around at the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to go away with them? And Peter says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I think for our college students and young adults who are in the room, Sometimes they look around at their friends or people they grew up with, and it seems like everybody is going away from the faith. Everybody is going away from church. And it's almost like they're being asked, are you going to go away too? And they respond, and they say, where else would we go? We have Jesus. He alone provides atonement. He alone overcame death. He alone is my hope and my foundation, and I will hold firmly to him. Let that be true in your life. All right, verse 15, that's number one. Hold firmly to your confession. Verse 15, let's look at how this fills itself out from here. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, just a quick comment so you can see there's a pattern, but it gets lost because of verse numbering in these verses, okay? In verse 14... The first half of verse 14 was the foundation. The second half of verse 14 was the command. So you have the foundation, and then you have the command. Now, verse 15, all of verse 15 here, this is the foundation. And then in verse 16, you're going to see the command. So verse 16, what's the command that comes out of verse 15? Well, verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, number one was hold firmly to your confession. Point number two this morning is draw near to God. 
How do you have a centripetal faith? How do you have a faith that keeps you drawn close to the Lord? You have to continue to draw near to God. You have to continue to come near. Now, when people heard this, I know you can hear that and say, cool, point number two, I'll write that in my notes, check. The first people who would have heard this message would have thought that was crazy. Why? Because remember, most of the people who received the book of Hebrews, they were Jewish. They'd grown up with the Jewish faith, they, faith, they'd grown up with the Jewish background, and they had been told from the time that they were little kids, you don't dare approach the holy place. You don't dare go toward the middle of the tabernacle. Only the high priest can go there, and only the high priest can go there once per year. You don't go there. It's like when you go to the grandparents' house, and there's like one room, and you tell your kids, please don't go in that room. Like, nobody goes in that room. They knew from the time they were little, we don't go in that room. And yet now they're being told that they can draw near to God. This is unbelievable. Uh, I use the example of going into a room at your grandparents. Maybe another example would be like at Thanksgiving. You spent your whole life at the kids' table, and now you're going to be invited to go eat at the adult table. And you're like, wait, wait. Like, my whole life has been this, like, metal folding chair and card table, and now I'm being invited to go to the adult table. Like, I thought that was always, you know, kind of out of bounds, and now I can draw near and be a part of this. A million times more important than that is what's being said here that we are being invited to draw near to God. How is that possible? Well, we have a great high priest who is the Son of God, who has provided atonement for sins and who has ascended above all things and overcome death and all the evil powers of this world. That's how it's possible. And not only that, but our brother, our great high priest, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because he became fully human. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to, be, to struggle, and yet he did not succumb to that sin. He was completely without sin. And this is good news for our lives, that we can continue to draw near to God. This is such good news that let's kind of break this down a little bit, okay? So we're going to do now those questions that you would do if we were in a Sunday school group or a small group, and you heard this, okay, number one, Hold fast, hold firmly to your confession. Number two, draw near to God. Let's unpack that a little bit. Like, let's do a little bit more with that. So let's start here. What prevents people from drawing near to God? You've been told all you have to do is draw near to God, that he is there, he wants to receive you, Jesus has made this possible. You can with confidence come near to him. Why would somebody not do that? Why would they not draw near to God? Well, number one, we think we'll be turned away. You may have heard somebody say, man, thanks for inviting me to church, but I cannot go to church because if I walked in those doors, pretty sure lightning would strike me. Like, I just probably don't need to. People carry this sense of shame and regret and guilt, and fear, and they say, there's no way I could draw near to God because you don't know what I've done, or you don't know, you don't know what's been done to me, or you don't, don't know what's happened in my life, and we carry this shame, we carry this guilt and fear, and it keeps us from drawing near to the one who's actually able to deal with these things. Number two, we think we have to get it together first. Like, oh yeah, I'll draw near to God, I'll get involved in my faith, I'll get connected to church, but man, I got some stuff I got to take care of first. Amanda and I talk about this sometimes, but we, we've run into this a lot with college students 
ministering to college students, where they would get to college and faith and life would start to wobble a little bit and life's not going really well. And, and we would invite them, hey, come, come and be a part of this Bible study. Come and connect. It. We, we just want to care for you. And they would say, I just got some stuff I got to take care of first. Like I, this sense that once I get my life together, then I'll go and connect with the Lord or connect with church. Can I just cut straight with you? You're not going to get your life together on your own. That, that time will never come. You will con- constantly feel that shame and fear and regret. We come to the Lord precisely because we don't have our lives together. Number three, we think we don't really need help. So why would I draw near to God when I can take care of this on my own? What do, you ha- what do you find when you draw near to God? You find grace and mercy. The most common description of God in, in the Bible is that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I don't know how you think God sees you. I don't know how you would describe God if somebody asked you to describe God, but the scripture says over and over that God is merciful and gracious He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so when you bring all of your junk and you bring all of your shame and you bring all of your regret and you bring all of your fear and all of your sin and you bring it to him, what do you find in return? Grace and mercy. And if that sounds too good to be true, let me just remind you how good God is. And this is not cheap grace, and this is not weak mercy. This is exactly what we need that draws us to repentance and helps us to find true life. Now, when do you need to draw near to God in those type of situations? When when do we draw near to God? Well, number one, we draw near to God when things are not going well. When we're facing trials or difficulties and it feels like life is, is falling apart, that's a good time to draw near to God, that, that we'll do it at that time. When we're facing temptations and struggles and you're at one of those crossroads in life that says, do I want to stay connected to Jesus in the faith or am I going to go out and do whatever I want to do? That's a good time to draw near to God. We draw near to God every single day. You know, you're like, let's see, which day do I not face difficulty and temptations and challenges? Huh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Like, oh yeah, it seems like every day something like that comes and every day we're invited to draw back to the Lord. Every week we're invited to draw near to God to experience his goodness and forgiveness and peace and hope through the gift of the church. We experience those things through prayer, through the word, through a life of faith, through, through the gift of the church. And, and let's talk for a second about that church piece. I think we struggle to draw near to God, connecting with the church because we're worried about how we'll be received. We worry that if I bring my junk and I bring my brokenness and I bring my regret and I bring all these things and I lay it before someone, that takes a lot of trust because you don't know exactly how that person is going to respond in that situation. And I would remind you here of, of an important distinction. There's a distinction between privacy and secrecy, okay? Let me work this out for a second. Privacy is the reality that not everybody needs to know everything we're dealing with in life. Like, privacy is a good gift. Secrecy is deadly. Secrecy says nobody is going to know this. I'm gonna bury this below the surface, I'm gonna bury this behind closed doors, and no one's going to know about that. That turns toxic in a hurry. And that leads you down a path that you do not wanna go down. Privacy, 
I acknowledge that. That's a good gift. Not everybody needs to know everything, but we cannot live in secrecy, that we're called to come and find God's grace and mercy. So with that being said, I want to put a question in front of you, and I would ask you to give your complete attention to this question, okay? Here's the question. If someone was to draw near to you or to our church, what would they experience? What would they receive? So let's imagine a situation where somebody's hurting, somebody's trapped in a temptation and sin, somebody feels like their life is falling apart, and they know they need to draw near to God, and they came to Emmaus, or they came to you, in that situation, what would they experience? And our hope is they would experience God's grace and mercy. Why? Because we've experienced that. And when we experience God's grace and mercy, we are put in a situation to turn around and share that with others. This is that terrifying question that's always good to ask people. You ask somebody, what's it like to be on the other side of me? I would encourage you, if you feel super brave this week or just want to expose yourself to a lot of critical feedback, like that's a really powerful question to ask somebody around you, hey, what does it feel like to be on the other side of me? What does it feel like to, to experience my words and my actions? What would somebody experience if they were to draw near to me and they were hurting? Our hope is that we're, we're trying to avoid two, two extremes here. They don't need you to be their judge, okay? We... I think that's what turns people away from church a lot of times. They're like, man, I can't share this because I'm going to be judged. I get that. I, I get what they're saying. They don't need you to be their judge. They also, hear me out on this, they don't need you to be their savior either, okay? We're not judge and we're not savior, but we can absolutely show them the power of the gospel. We can say, let me walk with you. Let me go with you through this. Let me tell you what God has done in my own life, and together we will walk toward Jesus, and I will show you how good he is, how good his grace and mercy is. Let me throw in a little plug here for a new group that's starting on Wednesday night, coming up this Wednesday night. We're starting that Finding Hope support group for family members and friends of alcoholics and addicts and when you're the family member or friend of someone who's an alcoholic or, or an addict, this idea of how do I receive them with grace and mercy when it's not gone well in the past? How, how do I put up those boundaries? How do I respond in a way that's healthy? How do I become healthy? If you need help in that area of life, six o'clock Wednesday night, we have those kind of groups. But here's what I'm wanting us to think about. If someone comes to Emmaus or someone comes to your house this week and says, I'm hurting I'm struggling, what are they going to experience? My hope is they would experience the grace and mercy of God that you have experienced as well. All right, how do we respond to God's word this morning? Two ways to respond. Number one, confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Hold firmly that confession. Say, I believe this, I know this is true. If you're here this morning and you've never made that confession, you've been around church, you have friends who are Christians. You've kind of always pushed that off to the side. This morning, I am calling you to confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, that you would experience his victory over sin, that you would experience his victory over death, and that you would find new life, that you would be drawn to follow him, drawn to follow him in baptism and give your whole life to him. And if you have questions with that, as soon as we finish the service today, we will be down here at the front. If you have questions about salvation, talk to people around you. 
confess Jesus as Savior and Lord and hold tightly to that confession. Number two is that you would draw near to God. We're going to have a chance to do that as part of the church when we draw near to the table. Just symbolically, that you would say, Jesus has given his life for me, and he invites me to draw near and to take of his grace and mercy. Because you might be here this week and, like, things have not been going well. Your emotions aren't good. Your thoughts aren't great. You feel overwhelmed. What's, what's God saying? Draw near. Come to me, and you will find grace and mercy. Let's pray, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you for your kindness in these verses. Thank you for these verses that tell us to hold firmly to our confession. And God, I keep thinking about our high school students and our college students and our young adults, they, how hard it is for them to look around and feel like everybody seems to be going away, everyone seems to be going away from the faith. And God, we are calling them to hold firmly to Christ, that he is their hope. God, strengthen them in that. And it may not be high school students. It may be an older adult in the room who is struggling to hold on to faith. They feel like life is about to throw them off the merry-go-round if it keeps going. And God, I pray that they would hold firmly to their confession. That they would know that when life is hard, they can draw near to you. And God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who feels like they can't draw near to the church, they can't draw near to other people because of what they're what they're dealing with, God, give them freedom and courage to do that. And God, last of all, I pray that you would make Emmaus the type of church that when people are hurting, they know they can come here to find grace and mercy. We're not their judge, we're not their savior, but we will point them to the savior. God, let this be that kind of church. Let us be those kind of people. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.